Hi, I'm B.T. Newberg of the brand new podcast, The History of Sex. We explode gender norms by exploring their incredible variety across time. In today's culture of gay marriage, trans rights, and a new politically correct term every day, things can feel a little chaotic. It makes you long for the good old days. When men were men and women were women, and nothing could be more clear, right? Well, sorry to break it to you, but... Those days never existed. If there's one thing the history of sex teaches us, it's that sex and gender have varied fantastically across different eras and cultures. For example, did you know that the Nazis encouraged young women to bear a child out of wedlock for the fatherland? Or that pre-contact Hawaii had no such thing as marriage? Or that ancient Romans had no concept of orientation, only a vague sense of preference for one sex or the other? That's the kind of stuff that we'll be covering in our new podcast, The History of Sex. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. The History of Sex. Pontifax is part of the Agora Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 99, Pope Stephen IV. I'm so tired of Stephen. Well, as per usual, this makes him Stephen IV slash fifth in all of the sources, so we're getting that out of the way. But this also makes him the inverse pontifical number of a very scandalous pope, you know, IV as opposed to VI. Doing research about Stephen IV is a challenge because everyone's like, like, did you you mean? mean... (laughs) Did you mean this other man who gets much, much more internet attention? But no, this is not that Stephen. (laughs) We're not that far away, but this is not that Stephen. And... This Stephen, Stephen IV, is our last pope in the 8th century edition of Liber Pontificalis. So uh, next week we'll be on to a new one, and that's always great. How many have we gone through by now? Uh, Liber Pontificalis editions? Mm-hmm. Four, I want to say? Three or four, at least. It kind of, There was one that kind of went from the beginning all the way up until like the 7th century, and then we had one specifically for the 7th century. 8th century, now we're going to be in 9th century, so 4. And it is also the last one, so, you know. We'll deal with that when we get there. (laughs) I guess. I guess we'll have to talk about why they stopped making those. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they tried. They do try. There is a revival effort at some point, but that is so far in the future, so we'll get there. For now, Stephen was born in Rome around the year 770, and his father was called Marinus. His family was noble and of relative significance, as it will also have two other popes in the 9th century, Pope Sergius II and Pope Adrian II. Man, imagine being a family that breeds popes. Oh, just just you wait, Fry. We're going to be soon dealing with nothing but families that breed popes. That's a, a weird thing to make. <laughs> it's a weird legacy to have. It is also weird, a weird way to phrase that. Not just there are many popes in our family history, more just like we breed popes. So, <laughs> Yeah, you know, like they're 
Arabian horses or something. I don't know. Well, we're almost at the point of Tusculum, so get ready for families that breed popes. I also consulted George L. Williams' papal genealogy, who suggests that it's possible that they were members of the Colonna family, or relatives thereof. And if so, they would also be related to Pope Martin V. But yet another source that I read, the Liber Sensum, suggests that he could have been part of the Massimo family? Stephen entered the church early, as was now the noble trend, and worked in the Lateran Palace at a young age during the papacy of Pope Hadrian. Then, when Leo III became pope, he, quote, noticed that Lord Stephen's life had a character of good behavior and humility, and so made him a subdeacon and then a deacon. And Stephen stood out as a deacon, according to the Liber Pontificalis, who says, quote, the Holy Ghost in his heart shone so brightly that he was proved efficient and capable at everything. High praise. <laughs> the Holy Ghost is making you good at all the stuff you do. Holy Ghost, pay attention to me. Yeah, can I have some Holy Ghost to be good at everything that I do? <laughs> be excellent. But anyways, this made him popular among the clergy, and so when Pope Leo III died, Stephen was elected to be the next pope, and consecrated on June 22nd of 816. Again, a quick election and a quick consecration. And this is great, right? We're not having to wait for confirmation anymore. I mean, you say that. You say that every time this happens. I do, because it's very short-lived. <laughs> Look how nice and convenient this is, and I want you to remember that, so... Anyways, once he was consecrated, Pope Stephen decreed that the Roman people should declare their fealty to Charlemagne's son and new Holy Roman Emperor, Louis the Pious. That's what we're going to call him, Louis the Pious. We have so many Louis. This is him. Now, this may seem counterintuitive considering the popes before him have worked to maintain the autonomy of the papal states with the emperor only as a sort of protector. But this oath of fealty is essentially that. It's not more than that. Basically, what he's looking to do is urge Rome to recognize Louis as a suzerain, which is a concept we haven't really dealt with before, but it refers to an overlord, to an area that is essentially otherwise autonomous. Which is essentially, at this point, what the emperor was in its obligations to protect the papal states and to be involved with any sort of foreign dealings for the church with, you know, Christianizing new territory and resisting Muslim incursion. It's not as crazy as it sounds to have the Pope saying, hey, we as Romans should pledge our fealty to the emperor. Also, the oath wasn't compulsory. It was just so much a general statement like, hey, the Holy Roman Emperors, they have done us well, we should, we should continue that on. He also then wrote to Louis to inform him of the election and to arrange a meeting. And Louis responded with an invitation to meet him in Reims and an order for Bernard, his nephew and now King of Italy, to escort the Pope along the way. So, hey, we need to meet. Hey, why don't you come to me here? And Stephen goes, Yes, why don't I do that? So he leaves Rome in August and arrives in Reims at the beginning of October. 
When they met one another, Emperor Louis prostrated himself before the Pope three times, or as Ermoldus Nigellus, the Carolingian poet, tells us in his poem In Honor of Louis, quote, The wise king bent his knee and adored the Pope three times or four in God's honor or St. Peter's. Then Stephen humbly praised him from the ground with his consecrated eyes and eagerly kissed him. Where, though? Oh, I'm going to tell you. The king and pious priest kissed each other, now on the eyes, now on the lips, now on the head, the breast, and the neck. I love how you said, where, though? And it's like, hey, Armoldus Nigellus absolutely anticipated you, Fry. (laughs) Everywhere. Here are all of the places in which this happened. Don't kiss people's eyes, that's weird. Eyes, lips, head, breast, and neck. I mean, I'd be a little bit more concerned if a stranger I was meeting for the first time kissed my neck. (laughs) It's a little bit stranger than... You're gonna let him kiss your eyes? You're gonna let a complete stranger kiss your eyes? Look, if those were the two choices, yeah, I think so. (laughs) That stranger's gonna get punched if they try to kiss my neck. It tickles. Exactly! So let them kiss your eyeballs. If those are your choices... Listeners, let us know. Eyeballs or neck? What is weirder? (laughs) They're both really weird. So weird. Such a bad choice to have to make, especially with a stranger. You know I'm putting this up on Twitter today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Historian Horace K. Mann states that Louis proclaimed, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of our Lord. The Lord our God has shone down upon us. And Pope Stephen replied with, Blessed by the Lord our God who has given me to see with my eyes a second King David. Essentially, it is a good and jovial time and everyone is excited about being here. I'm glad. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They're having a time, all of them weird kisses. And I don't know. I don't know if this is a party I want to be at. I'd be real confused and I would want to leave immediately. Let's just, uh, let's just head out and not say goodbye to anybody. So, the Pope then conducted Mass at the Church of Saint-Rémy on Sunday, October 5th of 816, and like had been done with his father, the Pope then crowned and anointed Louis as Emperor, his wife Ermengarde as Empress, and I'm waiting for you to go, Ermengarde. <laughs> Jesus. You do every time I give you the name Ermengarde, so. I know you got there before me. So he's crowned as emperor, she's crowned as empress or Augusta, and they are not crowned with just any crown, but a crown allegedly belonging to Emperor Constantine. We have several accounts of this coronation, and we're going to go over them for the sake of how many different sources we have available to us at this time. So first, from the Royal Frankish Annals, it says, The Pope at once let the emperor know the purpose of his coming, and after the customary solemn masses had been celebrated, he crowned the emperor by placing a diadem on his head. They then exchanged many gifts, celebrated splendid banquets, and established a firm friendship between them. After making other arrangements advantageous to the Holy Church of God, much as time permitted, the pontiff set out for Rome and the emperor for his palace at Campania. So, that's the first one. Then we have one from the Vita Huldovici, which is the life of Louis, by the astronomer. 
The astronomer is an anonymous source, and he's called the astronomer because his accounts are filled with all of these astronomical facts along the way. Ah, uh, he just really likes the stars. He does, and so he goes down in history as the astronomer, which has to be one of the better nicknames if you're going to get one. So Yeah, if you have to be anonymous, at least you can be an anonymous, anonymous man who likes stars. Yeah, exactly. I keep thinking back to this last season of The Magicians and the, the group just called The Couple, and I'm like, what a terrible anonymous nickname. So the astronomer says, on the next day, the Lord Emperor summoned the Lord Apostolic, prepared a most lavish banquet, and honored him with many gifts. In similar fashion, the Emperor was invited by the Lord Apostolic on the third day, and was given many kinds of gifts, and on the next day, which was Sunday, he was crowned with an imperial diadem and signed with a blessing during the celebration of Mass. And finally, when these things had been accomplished, the Lord Apostolic went back to Rome, having obtained everything he had asked for. You're not supposed to do work on Sunday. Why are we crowning kings? I mean, we'll get into that because this is a this is a very important coronation for reasons that are both related and also because of Charlemagne. But first, our final account from our poet Ermoldus Nigellus from In Honor of Louis, who gives us very flowery detail. He says, The Pope began again, and admonishing everyone, gave the command to be silent. One pious man spoke kind words to another. Rome transmits to you, Caesar, the gifts of Peter, worthy gifts for a worthy man, a suitable mark of honor. Then he ordered a crown with gems and gold to be brought forth, one that previously had belonged to Caesar Constantine. He took it in his hands, spoke the words of blessing, and holding the brilliant crown, he prayed, lifting his eyes to heaven. You who govern the rule of kings and ages of the world, you who decreed that Rome would stand at the world's head, hear my prayers, I beg. May Christ turn a kind ear, grant my prayers, faithful king, I plead. May Andrew, Peter and Paul, John and Mary, the fruitful mother of holy God, lend help. Keep this emperor Louis for a long time. Keep every sadness far away. Give him every good fortune. And what is more, I ask, drive afflictions away. May he both be happy and powerful for a long time. This coronation, we know for sure, happened. It was a very important moment, and this is a very political move on behalf of the Pope as a means of reestablishing and cementing, again, that only the Pope could bestow the imperial crown, and that this, crowning by the Pope, anointing by the Pope, is the way for the emperor to carry moral authority. Now, like we talked about last time, this is the precedent that was set by Leo's crowning of Charlemagne, but one that had been quickly broken when Charlemagne decided shortly after to declare his son Louis co-emperor in 813 and coronated him himself. And even more importantly, at that coronation where Charlemagne declared Louis his co-emperor, Louis had taken a crown from the altar and placed it on his own head, right? So you can see why the Pope is getting a little bit worried about this and why he's like, no, 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 we need to have like a real coronation. Because if Louis putting the crown on his own head stands as the official coronation, the Pope is completely removed from the process and the tie of granting legitimacy of the Western Empire would just evaporate. You can't just say you're king. I have to say you're king. 
That's exactly it, right? That's exactly it. Because if he doesn't say that you're the king, if the Pope doesn't say you're the king, the Pope doesn't have a role in this. And the Pope's temporal authority over things like the Papal States is just going to disappear. Because everybody's going to be like, well, I'm the Duke now. I'm the king now. And it's not going to work for him. It was critical at this stage that the Pope conduct this official coronation and not allow a deviation from the precedent set by his predecessor. And moreover, by using the quote-unquote crown of Constantine, as we've seen with so many active parallels made to the great emperor, he made a powerful statement about binding the successors of the empire and the successors of Peter, just like the donation of Constantine. Big deal. So after the coronation, Louis publicly renewed the ongoing relationship with the Pope and confirmed his commitment to the Papal States. He gifted Stephen a patrimonial estate in France, as well as all sorts of other material gifts. Linens, furs, treasures. I'm a Frenchman, and here's a house. <laughs> I am a Frenchman, here's a lovely estate, but also have these treasures to decorate your church, because that's what I do. Pope Stephen then elevated one of Louis's advisors, Theodolf, the Bishop of Orléans, to Archbishop and presented him with a pallium. Everything is looking pretty good. He also took the opportunity to speak to Louis about religious reform, particularly in regards to Frankish clergy who were currently living under the rule of Crotagang, or Crotagang, depending on how you want to pronounce that. So the rule of Crotagang is another monastic tradition that was kind of sort of based on the rule of St. Benedict, but had been altered by its writer, St. Crotagang. And the order of Crotagang was more pastorally active than the rule of St. Benedict, where its clerics would participate in the community rather than cloistering away. So although it's a quote-unquote, monastic tradition, its adherents aren't living as monks. And this is an extremely popular thing in the Frankish church at the time. Stephen is a little bit concerned that the men and women who are living under the rule of Crotagong as some sort of monks of Crotagong are not really up to the clerical discipline. They might not always be inhabiting separate convents. And there also seems to be like a fair amount of concern about how much food and wine the adherents were consuming. But information is, is somewhat scant to figure this out. I did, however, learn quite a bit about the Order of St. Crotagong, thanks to the article The Crotagong Rules, Rules for Common Life on the Secular Clergy from the 8th and 9th Centuries by Jerome Bertram. You should check that out if you want more of that. The more important feature of this reform of the Pope and the Emperor discussing this is that the Pope is still advising Louis on clerical discipline. And perhaps, in doing so, he's helping to, like, bring him more in line of consulting with the Pope, rather than intervening as head of the Frankish Church, as Charlemagne had. If you like me so much and I can give you all this advice, maybe you will not consider yourself head in charge with the Church. That's my job. I'm in charge. I'm in charge, and let's, let's not forget that. Your father was a little bit pushy. 
So the Pope left Rollins to head back to Rome. And on the way, he paid a visit to Ravenna and celebrated Mass in the Basilica Ursiana, where he, according to Eamon Duffy, quote, exposed the sandals of Christ to the veneration of the faithful. Huh. How do you still have those? I had to look into this a little more. You can't just throw a sentence like, exposed the sandals of Christ. Why are we using the words exposed? I had so many questions, and that certainly was one of them. But I was like, okay, so what is the deal with these sandals? These sandals are a relic from the Middle Ages, so thought to be of the Merovingian period between the 5th and 8th century, so we're not actually talking about the sandals of Christ. Yeah, I would not think those would have stayed together. They also definitely don't look like sandals that Jesus would have been wearing, but... Anyways, these were allegedly donated to Pepin the Short by Pope Zachary or Pope Stephen II. Why Pope Stephen IV now has them out for veneration in Ravenna is unclear. <laughs> the sandals today are now in Prum in Trier, Germany, which may have been built in part by the funds provided by Pope Leo III, which is what they claim. So I actually have. An image of these, sandals, of these sandals of Christ. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Here you go. These are them. Um, they don't look very Christ-like, do they? No, they are very fancy. Do they have like gold filigree? What's happening? Kind of looks that way. They're definitely made out of some sort of carved hide. Yeah, they are definitely carved hide. But then someone has pressed into. The carved part, gold. Well, and see, this is this is a perfect example of um, why they're not the sandals of Jesus. A no carpenter could have afforded that at the time. No, these are expensive. But they are now in Germany as the sandals of Christ. You can still go and see them. And for some reason, Stephen the Fourth is maybe just carrying them around. Get Jesus some Birkenstocks. I hear they're comfortable and durable. <laughs> that sounded a little bit like an ad for Birkenstocks. Birkenstock, would you like to pay us? I mean, I hate sandals of all sorts, so Birkenstocks can pay you. <laughs> you you can have it. I don't wear Birkenstocks. <laughs> they sound like a chore. All sandals sound like a chore. Even the sandals of Christ. They were a chore. I had to look them up. <laughs> So the Pope gets back to Rome in November of 816, and he sets to establishing the policies of his papacy. And one policy that he pursues is a vested effort to equalize the favor given between the clergy and the laity so that he's equally consulting with the Roman nobility. Clearly, after what had happened to Pope Leo, he'd never been on good terms with the nobility again. But Stephen wants to rectify this and bring about a more balanced and unified approach to both his church administration and the temporal rule of Rome and the Papal States. He also likely doesn't want to have his eyes cut out. Yep, can't get a second miracle. And one of the ways he works towards this is to issue a bunch of amnesties and recall nobles that had been exiled after the plots against Pope Leo. Mm, let's not bring back violent people. Let's let's make uh, good choices. 
I mean, but you have to remember that he is now a pope of the nobility, whereas Leo was a common man. So if he brings them back, the likelihood is they're not going to strike against him because he's a nobleman anyways. You know, if he just smooths all that over and gets rid of the divide, it looks good for him. He restores people to bring accord to the city and even brought back many exiles with him from Reims when he came from visiting Emperor Louis. And as the Libra Pontificalis says, the sacred bishop adopted the example of our Redeemer, who for us saw fit to come down from heaven and deliver us from the devil's captivity. He brought back with him by the church's piety all the exiles who were held captive there for their crimes and wickedness committed against the Holy Roman Church and Lord Pope Leo. Bringing people back, trying to make people happy. It's also mentioned in several sources that he issued a special confirmation for the Farfa Abbey, confirming its holdings and properties. Farfa becomes somewhat contentious. So it had been declared independent by Charlemagne in 777, exempt from local oversight or taxes, subject only to the papacy. And Pope Leo III, our last pope, apparently rode that subject only to the papacy bit quite hard. And so the abbey had lost some property as a result. They hadn't been paying because they thought they were independent. And the pope is like, no, you still owe me money. So I'm going to take some of this land. So Pope Stephen is now confirming their property that they had lost and giving it back to them but also declaring that the abbey was in still fact subject to the papacy, so they're within the papal patrimonial lands. They still owe an annual payment to the church of 10 gold soldi a year and 100 curialisons recited daily. Hey, I'll give you this land back, but don't forget you are subject to us. These are the terms. Everything is now clear. As clear as it can be, because it's going to come up again right away. Immediately. But not for Stephen, because Stephen died only a month after returning to Rome on January 24th of 817. So no cause of death is suggested anywhere, but given that it came on so quickly after he returned, and the fact that his birth year of 770 would suggest that he was still pretty young, it's likely some sort of unexpected illness. Got some traveling cough there? Yeah, essentially. He probably was, you know, a little bit exhausted. That flu hit him a little bit hard. Con crud. Yes, exactly that, but it will kill you. He was buried in Old St. Peter's, but his tomb was destroyed for New St. Peter's, and no epitaph survives. That is the much shorter than recently Pope Stephen IV. And now it's time to rate him. Papatum and Phallium. With the coronation of Louis, he was able to reestablish the Pope's role in the imperial coronation, tying the Pope to being the legitimizer of moral authority and giving him a substantial advantage for political and temporal power. Other than that, we have almost nothing, but that is still fairly good in itself. So it feels a little, you know, scrambly on his end, which doesn't super redeem it for me. So I'm going to give it a one. A one? Okay. You know, I look at this and I see a moment where everything that Hadrian and Leo sort of set up with the Holy Roman Emperors and how that could have just very easily 
been taken away from this. This could have turned into a situation of, like, Napoleon. So I have to give him a little bit more credit for being shrewd enough to recognize how important it was for him to do that. So I'm going to give him a three. And he's going to get a four in Papatum and Valium. Fructus prohibitum. Unless we want to give him points for kissing the emperor all over. On the eyes. Look, that's not a scandal. It's just real weird. It's just real weird. So it's not worth any points. Zero. They were consenting adults. They were consenting adults and they were they were having a time. So still zero. Seculari impactum. He tried to balance the approach between the clerics and the laity in Rome to to bring accord to both spheres of his power. It looks a little not good, like you said. He's recalling violent people. However, he is now a secular ruler. These are now people that he's going to have to deal with. But then he died. He brought back all of these violent people and immediately died. It's true. <laughs> there is no evidence to suggest that they had a hand in that. <laughs> it's just kind of a coincidence, but yeah. Someone else has to deal with them. Someone else does have to deal with them, but you know, it is likely going to be another noble pope. So he's trying to make it so that the temporal people actually have a say in how they're going to be ruled. This is worth at least a couple points. A couple points, yeah. I will give him a two. I'll give him a two as well. All right, so he'll get a four in Seculari Impactum. Although maybe we should give him a little bit more because he also confirmed the continued obligation of Louis the Pious to defend the Papal States. But is that anything more since we've already covered how important we that was? We already did that. All right. I will not go back and adjust my score. Fossium Sanctus. Are you ready for this man? I have to close the pictures of the sandals of Jesus. <laughs> Don't accidentally close the pictures of his face again. No, no, I won't do that. Here is his face. Have a look at him. Oh, okay. Yeah. He seems somewhat kindly. I don't know what it is. It's it's a very similar face to to looking at Leo the Third, who you hated, but he just looks more gentle about it, I guess. I assume that's another crack accident down in the middle of his face there. Oh, where are we looking? By his oh yeah, lip. yeah. Kind of looks like he's got some some sort of cleft palette, cleft beard coloring. Yeah. Um, like okay, so we have like several popes looking down, looking kind of tired, but he just looks. He looks like he's addressing somebody, but like he's having a conversation late in the night. Not that he's upset by it or anything like that. It kind of reads to me like he's walking and he's having a conversation with a child. His face is just very, like, gentle about it. Like, oh, why, yes. Answering some some strange question that children ask because they ask very strange questions. They do. Can a bee sting a bee? I don't know. <laughs> I like it. There's something nice about it. What's it worth to you? He's very nice looking. I will give him a six. Ah, see, that's exactly what I was thinking. I was going to give him a six. So he'll get a 12, and when we factor that out, he'll get a 3 for Facium Sanctus. 
There is another image of him, and it is the complete opposite. This does not in any way look like a kindly, gentle man. Oof. At all. <laughs> he looks... That looks like a Final Fantasy boss. <laughs> it does. I was thinking, like, angry Russian czar, but yes. That is the same vibe, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. It really is. These images could not be more different. <laughs> So yeah, I'm glad we're scoring on the first and not the second. Right. Tempus Pontificus. June 22nd, 816 to January 24th of 817. Seven months. So he gets scored at half a year at 0.125. All right, everybody. It's the canon bonus round. He is not a saint. No point in that category. Which brings us to his total score, which is unfortunate considering our last two behemoth popes, but he has an 11.125. It's not terrible. He is our 99th pope and he is in 80th place. That's all right. I accept that. Oh, it's fine. But now I must ask you if you think he is papally enough and pizzazzy enough with an impact enough for a papal bull that's gonna be a no from me it's gonna be a no from me dog so <laughs> it's unfortunate he seems like a perfectly nice pope man but perfectly nice doesn't quite give you enough for a bull so that's unfortunate that brings us to the end of our episode where we have thank yous to make so thank you as always to rex factor and totalis rankium Thank you, thank you, as always, to Dr. Rutger Kramer, our incredible source for so many, so many materials, and so, so much assistance. Thank you. And we also have some patrons to absolve of their temporal sins. So we need to absolve and thank Ustin Mathiasen, or Matthiasen. I tried... This name is, is clearly a, like a, a Nordic name, and there is one of the O's with the slashes. And so from my understanding, that is an uh sound, and I've gone with it. So, Ustin, please tell me that I've done all right. <laughs> I need to know. Ego te absolvo. And with that, we can say thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.